Hello, I'm Brian Carroll, equipping pastor here at Cypress Bible Church. Last year we did an adult alignment series on the I Am Statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. This included a sermon series, a discovery Bible study booklet, and our adult small groups and classes continued the discussion in their meetings. The overall response was extremely positive as people shared with us how their lives were changed and the impact on them in joining a group. This year we're doing another alignment series for seven weeks, starting on January 10th. Our focus will be on becoming more like Jesus with lessons from the Gospel of Luke. Becoming more like Jesus is a focus of all of our ministries at Cypress Bible Church. This year, children's ministry, student ministry, and our Spanish ministry will be joining in the series as well. The adult study will include a seven-week sermon series, uh, discovery Bible study booklets, opportunities to join grow groups and classes, uh, new group sign-ups, and the distribution of the discovery Bible study booklets will begin on December 10th. We hope you will join us in this journey of becoming more like Jesus.
Hello, I'm Brian Carroll, equipping pastor here at Cypress Bible Church. Last year we did an adult alignment series on the I Am Statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. This included a sermon series, a discovery Bible study booklet, and our adult small groups and classes continued the discussion in their meetings. The overall response was extremely positive as people shared with us how their lives were changed and the impact on them in joining a group. This year we're doing another alignment series for seven weeks, starting on January 10th. Our focus will be on becoming more like Jesus with lessons from the Gospel of Luke. Becoming more like Jesus is a focus of all of our ministries at Cypress Bible Church. This year, children's ministry, student ministry, and our Spanish ministry will be joining in the series as well. The adult study will include a seven-week sermon series, uh, discovery Bible study booklets, opportunities to join grow groups and classes, uh, new group signups, and the distribution of the Discovery Bible Study booklets will begin on December 10th. We hope you will join us in this journey of becoming more like Jesus. My name is Sadie Jane Cordes and I want to say welcome to Cypress Bible Church. We are really glad you are worshiping with us today. We love our church and if you're visiting with us today, we hope you will too. At CBC, we believe in beginning where you are and becoming more like Jesus. Everyone has a place here and we want to come together today, in person or online, to worship God. Let's begin our time praising God with the words Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. 
My heart, oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I'll sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I'll wake in the dawn. I'll praise you, Lord, among the nations. I'll sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now can we sing to the heavenly host and declare, Holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb. Let's stand together. Alleluia. Alleluia. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Alleluia. Come on, lift your praise to Him. Alleluia. Thank you. 
and the Lord of Lords. You are worthy of our praise, Lord. Receive it, we pray in Christ Jesus. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to Praise to him. Praise the church. Let's praise him.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, receive our praise and be blessed, we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Passes all understanding, peace so calming and undemanding. Peace, lovely peace, floods into our soul. Peace of healing, making us whole. Peace from God, peace from heaven. Peace, Jesus whispers, peace within. Lighting a candle is a simple yet profound act. It is a testimony to the power of light over darkness. As we light this second candle of Advent, we continue our journey to Christmas. The second candle of Advent is called the peace candle. As we anticipate Christmas, let us remember the birth of the Prince of Peace. Let us remember our need for a Savior to save us from our sins and give us peace with God.
wherever you are. Just sing hallelujah to the Lord. Hallelujah. Sing hallelujah. Praise be to the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise be to the Lord. Amen? Yes. Praise you, Lord. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. A few years ago, Maria Bruner was arrested and it made news, uh, which is amazing that it made news here in the United States because uh, Maria lives in Germany. See, she supports her unemployed husband and three children by cleaning houses. And her husband ran up uh, unpaid parking tickets totaling about $5,000, and he kept it a secret. But Maria found out because she owned the vehicle and was responsible for these tickets and uh, could not pay the fine. Because of that, she was arrested. Um, when the arresting officers came to get her, they said she seemed really happy to see us. She repeatedly thanked us for arresting her. Maria said, I've had enough of scraping a living together for this family. As long as I get food, a hot shower every day, I don't mind jail. So she got 90 days. How bad are things at home that jail is a good alternative? As we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, the focus is really on seeking peace. That's a, a, a key concept in the passage that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, and that is fitting on this uh, week as our Advent theme is also peace. Relationships are challenging. People are demanding. Culture is invasive. So how should a, a believer respond in those kinds of situations? The relationships and people and culture. Well, here's the big idea. That those who have found peace with God through Christ are called to live in peace in every relationship and circumstance. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Corinth who had wrong ideas about a lot of different things. We've been addressing some of those things. There's more to come. But uh, one of the wrong ideas they had was about sex and about marriage See, before hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, these people had lived for themselves. That was what their culture was about in Corinth, this great city in the Roman Empire. Uh, that culture placed a high value on success and self-promotion and intellect and competition and sexual pleasure. And then the gospel came into Corinth, and, and that gospel told them that they were sinners separated from God, their Creator, that they were deserving of judgment. God the Father's love was so great that He sent His eternal Son into this world. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. Jesus lived the perfect life and took our sin upon His own body and was brutally executed. His death paid sin's penalty for all who put their trust in Him. His resurrection from the grave three days later won the victory over sin and death. And that was the gospel message that the Apostle Paul brought into Corinth, and many believed. 
they receive this gift of God that is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, they were changed. The gospel transforms your identity and your destiny. And this is what happened to a group of Corinthians as they became Christians. They, their lives were transformed. They were no longer uh, slaves to sin, dead in sin, but they were alive in Christ. They were believers belonging to God Himself, sons and daughters, with their destiny changed forever, secure in Christ. They were new creations. So uh, understand, though, that this, though this group of people had now their identity and destiny changed, that didn't mean that marriage troubles completely disappeared. That didn't mean that uh, the temptations that had troubled them before now went away. It didn't mean that they were never confused about things. It didn't mean that they were no longer selfish or angry or unforgiving. In fact, all these kinds of things plagued the, the Christians in Corinth as they plague us today still, although in Christ our destiny and identity is been transformed forever. In fact, there were groups within the church in Corinth that had completely opposite views about some pretty significant things. Uh, one of those was sex, for example. We talked about that for the last couple of weeks. One group in the church advocated sexual freedom. They said, your sex life doesn't have any connection to your spiritual life. We're, we're free in Christ, so do whatever you want. And Paul corrected that viewpoint in chapter 6. The the opposing group, or another group in the church, said that sex is so unspiritual that nobody should ever have it, not even those who are married. Everybody should abstain. Paul corrected that viewpoint, as we saw last week in the first nine verses of of chapter 7. So now, Paul has more to say about marriage and divorce And uh, we need to look at it because we're tempted, as the people in Corinth were, to seek an easy way out in search of peace. And the reality is that uh, in the midst of relational and situational chaos, Christ's followers should make choices that lead to peace. Yes, they are. We, We live in a world, as the Corinthians did, that has all kinds of relational chaos, situational chaos. It's not getting any better is it? But in that situation, as those who follow Jesus, we're called to to make choices, decisions that lead to peace. Well, let me break down this passage that we're studying this morning, verses 10 through 24, into three sections. And see these three essentials to peace. Notice what Paul points out. First of all, if you're married... Stay in your marriage. Verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, first of all, we have to be very careful not to project our cultural understandings of marriage and divorce onto this situation, uh, onto this text. Uh, We are talking many, many years ago in a completely different environment and cultural context. Um, Corinth was part of the Roman Empire. Just to give you a little bit of background here into the three types of marriage that were generally accepted in the culture 
of Corinth in the Roman Empire at that time. Let me describe them this way. The first, uh, instead of using Roman Latin words, I'll use English words to describe them. Number one was usage, which is just as bad as it sounds. Uh, We might call this common law. It's similar to that. Uh, in that couples living together as husband and wife, that, that is, they are representing themselves as husband and wife for a long period of time, about a year, uh, then they were considered married. And this type of marriage was used only by the lower classes people, uh, not the nobility. That was one kind. And, and you'll see why this was true in a moment. The second type of marriage we'll call purchase. That would be somewhat similar to an arranged marriage in that it was a business transaction where the bride was purchased from her family. And the couple would stand in front of an official and five adult witnesses and payment was exchanged. Uh, and, And this was the type of marriage also practiced by the commoners and not the upper class so much. The third type of marriage we'll call sacred, but uh, it is very similar to what we would call traditional marriage ceremonies. But the sacredness here was that it was done in honor of Jupiter, the chief, the principal Roman god, mythology. It was, this was the marriage practiced by the nobility, the upper class, not the commoner. Why? Because it cost a lot of money. That was why. You didn't have money unless you were part of the upper class, the nobility, and and therefore they were the only ones who could do this. And and many of our wedding traditions come from this practice. For example, I'll just name a few. The bride wore a ring on the third finger of her left hand. She wore a white gown and a veil. After the ceremony, which I believe there were ten witnesses, an official, um, there was a great feast. And everybody got cake. Sounds good already, doesn't it? The uh, Roman word for this, the Latin word for this kind of marriage, actually specifies the kind of cake uh, that was involved. Then after that uh, happened, the uh, bride and the groom would travel to their, their home, their new home together, and the, the wedding guests who followed them would throw nuts and sweets around where... Presumably, we get this idea of rice being thrown around, less sticky and messy than sweets and nuts, I suppose. And then uh, once they reached the home, the bride was carried over the threshold. Her first task upon being set down by the groom was to take a, a torch that was specially prepared for the purpose and light the first fire in their home together. And then she would toss that torch to the guests, presumably after she had put it out. And they would scramble for it, which is where, presumably, we get this throwing of the bridal bouquet idea. So that's just a few of the... That's where some of our traditions stem from, apparently. Now, divorce in the Roman Empire, by the time of Jesus and beyond, was extremely common and routine. A Stanford professor wrote this, that Romans didn't get a divorce, they simply divorced There were no legalities involved. You just said, this marriage is over, and you left. If there was money to be returned, then you returned it. But there was no reason was needed. It was no-fault divorce in every concern. And to understand the, the 
the culture of Rome at that time, you realize that, uh, especially for nobility, if you were a man, sex with a slave or a prostitute was not even considered adultery. And so a wife might object to that kind of behavior, but it was not needed as grounds for divorce. It just simply was something that you did. No legalities involved at all. So you see that Paul is speaking into this background with all kinds of different situations going on. Um, The Corinthian church included the poor and the wealthy. It included nobilities and commoners. And so you can imagine that all three types of these marriages were represented in the church at Corinth. And some of them would have had multiple marriages already and maybe multiple divorces already uh, before coming to Christ. And so Paul is, is speaking into this very complicated situation. And he gives a command for married couples to stay together. He reminds them that this is what Jesus taught. He's speaking of the words of the historical Jesus, which which would have been known and and, and made familiar to the Corinthian church. Uh, And and repeating these words, he he speaks, remember throughout this passage, he deals equally with both uh, women and men, unlike what was commonly practiced at that time. And he does so here. Don't be confused by the different words of separate uh, and divorce. They are two different Greek words, but they are synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. Uh, don't get the idea of separation as we might think of it today, where you're separated, but you're not, uh, you're not divorced. No, no, both of these words meant divorce. And he's call, talking to these Christians and saying, uh, don't separate, don't divorce your spouse. Uh, neither spouse should initiate divorce. Now, remember, this goes against what was extremely common in their culture. And Paul is not addressing situations of adultery. He's not addressing situations of abuse or abandonment. What he's doing is underscoring the durability that is essential for a peaceful home. Now Jesus, as Paul quotes, affirmed the permanence of marriage, saying that what God has joined, let no one separate. That's Matthew 19, verses 5 to 8. And Jesus explained that God allowed Moses to permit divorce among his people because of the hardness of their hearts. And Jesus also said that divorce is permitted in cases of porneia, or sexual immorality. That's Matthew 5, verses 31-32. And, and so pa- Paul isn't bringing any of that into to, to mind here. He has another exception that he's going to bring up. But he's trying to underscore to these Corinthians who were maybe set to end marriages for reasons we'll talk about in a moment, about the permanence of marriage. And he says you need to remain, that word remain is a a present tense continuous action. And as one scholar put it, uh, you need to stay single so that you can get back together again. Uh, What what Paul has in mind here, he's addressing situations where divorce really wasn't justified, when there's no biblical warrant for ending a marriage. And and he's talking about two Christians here, and the need for if the the marriage has been broken up, that, that you need to stay single so that you can get back together again because as you know from old testament law uh you could not once you've married somebody else you could not go back and marry your first spouse uh, again uh that was unbiblical so uh, paul's addressing all kinds of things here um and uh uh, there was a uh a young couple that i performed a wedding ceremony for 10 or more years ago and uh they went through our premarital counseling with, with flying colors. Our, our marriage and family therapist who did the, the majority of their counseling said there were no red flags. Excellent young uh, couple who professed Jesus. I met with them. I was impressed with them. 
uh, I read people pretty well, and uh, I, I thought this was, this was going to go great. And uh, just a, a short time after the uh, wedding problems began to occur, and uh, began to hear after some months that um, this uh, husband was addicted to porn in such a way that he couldn't stay away from it even during the workday. And he began embezzling uh, money from the small business that they had. And, and as they tried to work out these problems and these challenges where they were both uh, kind of accusing each other of a variety of things, the husband took uh, his wife on a camping trip and there in the middle of the woods tried to kill her. Uh, she was in great shape and got away. Uh, let me just say all... Cut to the chase that uh, divorce is sometimes unavoidable, all right, uh, for a variety of reasons. Even, uh, even when it's wrong, even when it's unjustifiable, it's never an unforgivable sin. Uh, as God's people, what, what we're called to here is to reject our culture's view, as the Corinthian Christians were called to reject their culture's view uh, of marriage as disposable, of marriage as temporary, as, as something not uh, uh, holy and honored before God. Um, by the way, uh, CBC has I, what I feel is a very good written policy about divorce. We have a position statement, rather. Uh, you can, if you've never read it, it's just one page. It's in our policy, church policy handbook, which is online. It's page 35. It's primarily directed at uh, who can serve, can, can a divorced person serve in leadership. Um, but but I, it's worth a read if you want to check that out sometime. But these, these are complex issues. The, the encouragement is if you're married as a believer, to a believer, stay in your marriage. That's the encouragement. That's the, the way to peace. Secondly, uh, Paul says, if you're a believer, stay in your family. To the rest, verse 12, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So when he says he's talking to the rest, who's he talking to? Well, clearly, then the first group were Christians who were married to one another. The rest, as is clear from what he says in these verses, refers to a Christian who's married an unbeliever or who finds him or herself married to an unbeliever after they come to Christ. Now, this is a situation Jesus did not address at all. And so Paul, that's why he says, not I, but the Lord. That This does not make his words any less authoritative than Jesus. Despite your red-letter Bibles, I believe all the words are inspired, whether they come from Jesus or from someone else. And, and uh, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, is saying this, this is not something Jesus talked about, but I'm telling it to you. Why? Because I need to apply this to the cultural setting in which we're in. There's some things going on in our culture that uh, although Jesus didn't talk about it, I need to tell you what a believer should do. The problem was this. Uh, now, the gospel comes to Corinth, and people believe, well, there, there might be a husband who believes and the wife doesn't, or a wife who believes and the husband doesn't. So what are they supposed to do? Now you have an unequally yoked marriage, uh, which uh, a, a, a scriptural principle would be that would not be God's will for a, a believer to marry an unbeliever. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6 speaks to that a bit. 
So, so what's this Christian supposed to do now that they are new in Christ? He or she is new in Christ, and they have a spouse who is not a believer, maybe even antagonistic to the gospel. And, and so the Christian might be thinking things like this. I, life would be a whole lot easier. Life would be a lot better if I was married to a believer, if I was equally yoked with somebody who believed what I believe, if, if they would go to church with me, if they'd study the Bible with me. I mean, after all, if I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul has said several times already, then I'm probably sinning just by sleeping with my wife or my husband. Here I am, a temple of the Holy Spirit, connected to somebody who is not. Now, Paul addresses this very situation. And he says, although the original marriage may not have been God's will if you married an unbeliever, it's God's will for you to stay married as long as the unbeliever desires. Why? Well, a couple of reasons he gives here. Verse 14 Because God blesses them through you. God blesses your unsaved spouse through you. You, you, as a child of the king, have have riches and blessings in Christ Jesus. You're blessed with love and and joy and peace. You've been blessed with adoption into the family of God. You're blessed with forgiveness of your sin through the blood of Christ. You have the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to live an abundant life. You have an inheritance that will not fade forever. And that kind of blessing, the, the riches of Christ, spill over onto your spouse and your family. It puts them in the sphere of blessing. Whether you are wife or husband, you are a carrier of holiness in that situation. The second reason would be in verse 15 and 16 about why you should stay in your family is because God influences them through you. He influences them. Your faith will not save your spouse, not ever. Your faith will not save your children, not ever. No, that's only by their faith in Christ alone can they be saved. But your presence in that home makes your home superior to an unbelieving home. John Calvin said that your godliness has more power to cleanse the marriage than ungodliness can make it unclean. There's power as a believer in your home. Now earlier, um, chapter 6, Paul had warned against sex with a prostitute, which was common and accepted in that day, at least particularly with men, because, he said, you are one body. As a believer now, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You you can't take that, that temple and unite it with a prostitute because you are connecting together in an unholy way. Now here he argues something different. That an unbeliever who is joined, connected to a Christian spouse is connected in a holy way. That there's a holiness attached to that. He's not forbidding sex between an an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse. He's saying, no, that's a good thing. Marriage is a holy institution. It is the will of God. So uh, because of those reasons, if you're a believer, stay in your family, if at all possible. Because God's called us to peace. Third section of Scripture here. If you are called, stay in your situation. Let me read verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. 
Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is God's slave, is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Now that's very repetitive for a reason. You see, some believers were discontented with their social status. They were now new creations in Christ. Uh, they thought things should change, and no, that things weren't really changed. The, the slaves were still slaves. The, the poor were still poor. Uh, and, and some of them were discontent with their social status, with their marriage situation, with their spiritual gifts and abilities, as we'll see later in this letter. And they wanted to be something better. They wanted to be something different. And Paul says, no, you need to be who God called you to be. Uh, this doesn't mean you shouldn't try to improve your life where possible, but there are many things that happen in our lives that can't be changed, and there are other things in our lives that should not be changed, except those as from God. And he gives a couple of examples here. Uh, circumcision, uncomfortable subject for us men to talk about, so let me be uncomfortable for a few moments. Um, this was a great ethnic barrier. Why? Because the world was divided into two people, two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. Everyone who was not Jewish was Gentile. And the Jews, males, Jewish males, were circumcised as a sign of their Jewishness and covenant acceptance with God. Not the Gentiles. They were not circumcised. Now, as new Christians, that didn't need to change. You say, well, why is that even an issue? Well, because there were some Jewish Christians who were preaching that Gentiles who became Christians needed to undergo that little surgical procedure in order to be accepted by God. And, and Paul refutes this, and he does it here. He does it in Galatians 5, 6, where he says, there, circumcision is of no value in Christ. This has no standing before God. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. That's by grace through faith. So you had those Jewish Christians who were kind of demanding that Gentiles get circumcised once they became believers. Then on the other hand, you had some Jewish Christians who wanted to surgically reverse their circumcision. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, once they understood this isn't required for salvation, the easiest way for me to fit into society and get ahead is to reverse this surgical procedure because otherwise I have the stigma as a Jewish person. You say, well, how are people going to know this? Well, you got to understand that culture. If you were an athlete, you competed in the games in the nude, so people would notice that. Uh, if you went to the gymnasium, you did gym things in the nude. If you went to the public baths, you, of course, were nude. And so uh, that would be noticed. And, and in order to avoid that stigma, there were some who were wanting to reverse their surgery circumcision and Paul says no 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 uh, don't do that uh, don't try to fit in in this way be who you are in Christ now the second example he gives is about slavery and this was the greatest social barrier uh, you remember that about a third of the population of the city of Corinth were slaves and so uh, there were some of those in the church and uh, slavery meant that you were not legally a person and that you were considered property some slaves were treated great others were treated horribly some had careers like they were doctors and so on others were just menial labor uh, slaves but nonetheless you were a second class person 
and, and now that you were in Christ, that you'd become a, a believer, should you rebel? Should you revolt and, and, and get free? And Paul says, no. Now, if you can get free, that is legally, if there's a way in which you can get your freedom, then do it. But if not, don't let it bother you. Don't make pursuing your freedom the focus of your life. Understand that you're not second class in Christ. You're precious to God. He will care for you. Even as a slave, you can live out your identity in Christ. Now see, Corinth was all about status. And and, and Paul says, don't worry about your status. If you belong to Jesus, you have the greatest status of all. Now let me just underscore here that God does not guarantee or promise material success or social betterment for those who are in Christ. Uh, he doesn't ch- in fact, we, our, our standard of living may suffer. Our social standing may suffer as a result of our faith in Jesus. And Paul just wants to remind God's people that you've been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. You are his slave. No one else can truly own you. Keep that in mind. And there will not be peace in your home until you realize that whatever situation you find yourself in, you can be content in Christ. Paul lived this out in a variety of ways. Philippians 4.12, he said, I've learned the secret of contentment in any and every situation. It was to found his identity in Christ regardless of what he had experienced. So uh, here's what I want you to focus on as we uh, look at this passage, that every believer is a holy force. The gospel does not transform your surroundings. The gospel does not transform your situation. The gospel transforms you. Uh, And if God has called you into the kingdom of light, he can use you right now in the middle of your unhappy family, your hellish workplace, your impossible neighborhood, your struggling financial situation, your squabbling siblings, your shaky marriage. God can use you in the midst of all of that. Live in the transforming power and do not give up. I met Beverly for the first time um, over 30 years ago. And uh, she was a faithful church member who seemed to love Jesus. Extremely quiet, timid, small, little middle-aged woman. And uh, one day shortly after uh, my arrival at that church, she made an appointment to see me, and unburdened herself. She was exhausted emotionally and physically. Um, She had an unbelieving husband who was dismissive of her needs and domineering and demanding and just mean. He, He wasn't physically abusive, maybe not even verbally abusive, but he was not a nice guy. I came to know him uh, in the next couple of years. Um... And Beverly struggled to pay the bills and keep the house sparkling the way her husband demanded that it be. They had three adult children, the youngest of whom was a strong believer in Jesus and very involved in his local church. The other two lived wild and ungodly lives in every way. And Beverly, in her unburdening herself, had some questions. Uh, Questions such as, did she have the right to ask her husband to take off his muddy boots when she had just mopped the floor rather than tracking it through the house? Did she have the right to say no sometimes when people made unreasonable demands? 
And there were those. There were, her husband had two maiden aunts who lived nearby, and they uh, demanded that Beverly do everything for them, clean their houses and do their shopping and care for their every need. And that sometimes that conflicted with other things that Beverly had to do. So she had these concerns, and, and, and it was just overall in life wondering how God wanted her to live in this kind of situation. I tried to affirm her. I tried to encourage her. I tried to advise her on how to live for Jesus in that situation. Now, I would love to say her life miraculously improved, uh, but it didn't really. But some things did change. As she continued to live for Jesus in that home, about a year later, her older son came to faith in Jesus and grew as a disciple and within five years was a leader in his local church. Fifteen years later, her daughter's hard life finally caught up with her And in desperation, she confessed her sin, repented of all that she had done, and turned to Jesus. Her life was radically transformed, and in the midst of suffering and disease, she testified of God's transforming power in her life, and she died at age 40. Now, as I look back all those years ago, I have even more respect for Beverly than I did at that time. Tremendous respect. This quiet, timid little woman had superhuman courage in Christ. She was a holy force who influenced her world. And in this chaotic age in which you and I live right now, you and I can be a holy force too. Let us go and do that in the power of the name of Jesus through the Spirit of God who gives us strength. Let's worship our Lord and remind ourselves of the price that was paid for our salvation as we join in communion together. No, this is not a way in which we typically share the table, the bread and the cup together, but it is the way we do it in this day and age as we remember the Lord's death for us with this bread and this cup. I encourage you to take these elements, to take off that first tab and to take this wafer representing the body of our Lord, the the body that bore the weight of our sin. If your faith and trust is in Jesus, you are declaring, you are celebrating, you are remembering, you are giving thanks that His sacrifice was so that you have life. That, That His body bore the wrath, God's wrath and punishment against sin so that you would not bear that wrath against sin for eternity. And so with great thanksgiving, we honor God with this bread and this cup, and let me do so in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for the purchase of our salvation through the sacrifice of your son Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to give your life, even to the point of death on the cross. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present with us now, assuring us that we belong to you. Lord, flood our lives with peace now. Not because of our situation, our circumstances, our relationship. Flood us with peace now because of what you have done for us, that you have changed and transformed us, and we are your temple. Receive our praise as we remember you in this way. In the name of Jesus, amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it. He gave thanks and said to his disciples, as he says to us today, Take and eat. This is my body. And then with the cup, 
Jesus said this cup represented his blood. It was the, the new covenant of his blood. He was about to die, spilling his life for the forgiveness of our sins. The perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And so as we remember that sacrifice and we say thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift that is ours in Christ Jesus, let us do as Jesus instructed to do and drink in remembrance of him. Thanks be to God. Our hope, our peace is in Christ alone. We sing these words together. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest crowd and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are stilled, when striving cease My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand
this benediction that Paul gave to the believers in Corinth when he said, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen. God bless you. Let's worship together this morning. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great. 